Uh, and welcome uh, everyone for obviously the titles that are preparing for success at mediation and arbitration. Um, and today uh, we have Mr. Wally McDonough, uh, who will lead us through this discussion. I will moderate. Um, Wally is, as you can see, I'm not going to repeat everything here, but uh, Wally has a long and storied career as both a construction uh, litigator, lawyer, and advisor. Uh, he has been partners a partner at a major law firm, as well as uh, general counsel to Suffolk Construction and others, uh, and has had a already storied career as a mediator and arbitrator. He's well-known in the industry, certainly well-known uh, in this region, and a go-to mediator and arbitrator for the construction bar. Um, and as you might have guessed, this particular presentation will focus on uh, effective uh, mediations and arbitrations in, you know, handling construction cases. Uh, so with that, and just a couple of ground rules, I think it probably pretty much covered it. And folks have been doing these now for probably three years. Uh, there is a Q&A button for folks to submit questions while we're uh, hosting this webinar, and we will try to answer and address those in real time as they come in. So please feel free to type in your questions. Uh, as we go. Uh, and with that, I will turn it over to Wally McDonough. Well, thanks, John. And thanks, everybody, for taking some time. Um, I know everybody's busy and sometimes carving out an hour of your time to listen to somebody, particularly in the Zoom era, is uh, is not the easiest thing. So just a couple of things that I wanted, if you can get anything out of this, the the, the focus for today is to provide all of you with sort of things that I see um, for attorneys to do to be prepared both for mediation and arbitration and to give yourselves and your clients the best chance for success. Um, and if there's one thing you take away, a lot, a lot of what arbitration is all about is setting expectations primarily for your client. Um, and I think we forget sometimes dealing with clients, especially in um, construction situations can be um, challenging at best. And, and we'll talk about some individual um, uh, examples while we go through this. Um, but I also, we also welcome any questions you have because it'll be helpful if you're looking for specific and you have an idea, happy to answer it. So um, with, with that as a start, I'm just going to go as a start. We've got some slides here to sort of guide the conversation, but John may pop in and uh, tell me to stop boring people and we'll accept that as well. So just as a start, one thing is to the starting point is I think when you're talking to your client, it's important to inform your client and whoever the decision maker is what mediation is and what it's not. Um, a lot of clients and even sophisticated ones come in and think that they have to win the mediation. They have to prove that they're right. So mediation is a forum for a resolution of dispute. While it's voluntary, it can feel anything but voluntary. And your clients need to understand that, that they may be challenged during the day. Um, and I, I've mediated, I think, with some of the people here who are on the, um, uh, who I see as attendees. And what I say to people at the beginning of mediation is it's a voluntary process, but if I'm doing my job right, it may not feel voluntary during the day because I think it's important that your clients and you get a sense of where might be the weaknesses uh, or questions about your position. So um, that's important. Uh, it's not a forum for settling scores or proving you're right. And the mediator isn't the judge and he's not there. She's not there to declare a winner. So I think those those things are just as a starting point, particularly if you've got a client who has not been through mediation more than a time or two before, or they're complete novices, making sure that they understand what this is all about, uh, what it is and what it's not, uh, is a really important um, starting point. So um, on this point, Wally, you know, make, if there's, you know, I'm always, looking at there's this mediator is not a judge. And so there's like obviously two issues here is one, you prepare your clients for what to expect and how this, how you intend to advocate for your case and otherwise. Um, but the role of the mediator, you know, you're right. I mean, the mediator usually isn't a judge unless in some rare circumstance you want the mediator to be a judge, right? So there's obviously a whole range of considerations and strategies as a lawyer, depending on the posture of your case and, and, and really, 
client management issues where you might you might want the mediator to offer or to at least signal some sort of opinion, right? If if particularly yeah. well, you might have a kid who 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 evaluates their claim very differently than the lawyer does. Um, yes, and it's funny, and I'll tell a quick story. When I first um, brought a client, or it was actually my boss at Suffolk, to a mediation. Um, the mediator was a very evalu- had a very evaluative style. Um, he was more than free and willing to express his opinions, which is the way I go about it. And as he spoke, a lot of the things he was saying were the same things I had said to my boss, who quickly explained that he thought that we were, in, you know, we were collaborating with each other or conspiring with each other to make him settle a case he didn't want to settle. And I said, John, these were not. These were obvious things that we needed to understand, and he's just pointing out the exact same things that I already pointed out to you. So in some instances, the mediator can be your ally to actually explain to your client if they're difficult that the case isn't a slam dunk, that it's not a simple case, and it's not something that you've got a better than 70% chance of winning. I think those are important things. And especially if you have a trust level in the mediator, uh, and letting him know you've got a difficult client in advance, um, that may also be something that you want to do. I wouldn't do it with somebody you don't know, but I would suggest that if you've known the person and mediated with them before, it might be something worth considering if you've got a difficult client. Yeah, and I'll, and I'll just I'll just point out one one point that you one more one last point that you raised before we move on. There is, you know, the trust in the mediator too. You know, lawyers obviously know know your clients know your client's emotions and know your sort of client's inclinations because sometimes you, you got to make sure you have a, a mediator that the client's going to trust as well, right? And the last thing you want to do is walk out of there, have the client thinking that the mediator, you know, that just having no faith in the mediator and that blaming both the mediator and you for choosing the mediator <laughs> right? and, and considering the whole process a waste of time. So trust is important both from you and your client trying to pick the right profile mediator um, that will engender trust from your own client. Yep. Okay, so we flipped over to the next slide, and, and this one says select the right people to attend mediation sessions. I'm sorry. Um, and you know, if it's a if it's a an individual plaintiff, it might and it's a simple case, it might just be the plaintiff only. Um, it might be the client and his spouse, tr- trusted family members. But when you get into business contexts um, and in construction cases in particular. Sometimes there will be a team that show up uh, and appropriately show up for mediation or for part of the mediation. Um, oftentimes, um, I've found it's helpful to have people who were employed on the particular project or in the particular issue um, be either live at the mediation or available um, by Zoom um, because they can provide technical support in terms of saying, yes, that happened, or no, it didn't, or this is how it happened. Um, but equally, if if you think they're going to, those individuals are going to be um, good witnesses for you, it may be worthwhile to make sure that the other side at least knows they're available uh, and sees and hears what they're going to say. Because if they're credible and they're likable people, and they're going to get make good witnesses if the case doesn't settle at trial or at arbitration. You want the other side to know that. Uh, conversely, if you have a, you know, an ex-employee who was your project manager, and he's going to be difficult uh, at best to get to cooperate, you might want to leave him off the list. Um, but recognize that that may be may create some challenges for you. Um, but I think having the right people in in the room, both in terms of um, people with direct knowledge of the situation, but also people who can make decisions is very important. And if the you know senior people in the organization are there, having advisors who can move them in the right direction is also important. Um, if the client is going to be difficult, you need to consider that in advance. And I think giving giving the mediator a heads up on that is probably a good idea. It's not necessary because I can usually tell fairly quickly if that's going to happen, but I, I think it's a good idea. As a mediator, Wally, are you ever is it is it it is there possible to bring too many people to a mediation or the wrong people? You know, does anything stand out in your experience where you know somebody shows up, you know, parties show up, and you're like, uh, you know, this is too much, or yes. too much of the wrong type of person, like 
consultants, you know, or experts or anything like that? Yes. So I, uh, my view on consultants and experts is you should, if you, if you think they're going to be there, they should have a purpose and they should not be planning to be there the whole day unless they are also advisors at the same time. But if they are, again, providing technical support, assume that after the first or second private session, by that time, you've probably gone through a lot of the facts and you probably got what you need out of that person and they can be let go. But John, to that point, um, I think it's important to have an honest conversation with your own clients in advance as to who's showing up, what is her role in the job or in the situation and are they are they um, going to be a force to try to settle the case? Because there are people who show up at mediation, um, and either because it affects them personally for financial reasons on a bonus, or it affects them personally because if the job goes poorly and the settlement goes poorly, they may not get a promotion or they may um, you know, be fired, then you don't want those people at the mediation because they've got an incentive to not settle the case. So I think it is important that your, you know, whoever your client says are the people they think are good are, are, are good attendees, you should be asking for each one of them why, what is she or he gonna add that's valuable? Uh, what do we need them for? Um, and and be careful to not have too many people. Um, so yes, that's, I think that's an important point. Okay. Um, for the, it, so, so when you get there, it's, it's very important. And one of the questions I ask in all my mediations is when we show up, um, you, you need to have someone that you're confident has real authority to settle a case right there, right then. Now it may be that, uh, and particularly this happens in public construction projects. It may be that um, someone has the authority to recommend a settlement, but maybe the board of selectmen needs to approve it, or maybe um, you know there's a board of directors that needs to approve something. And that should be clear if that's a requirement and that's okay. But the person who's there needs to have the authority to say, yes, we are going to settle this case, or yes, we will recommend this to the board of selectmen or whom we report to and with a positive recommendation that it be settled. Um, the last thing in the world you want is someone to show up and say, yeah, I have authority, but then halfway through the day, you find out that they really didn't. And I put a, a note in here that said, don't set artificial limits on authority. Um, and if we probably all of us have dealt with insurance professionals and they have a limit when they show up, but if they say, I only have authority up to $150,000, for example, and they say publicly, that can create when it's a, you know, when it's a on its paper, seven figure case, that's going to create a real challenge for getting the thing settled. So it's important to understand that people have authority. And if there are limits on what their authority is, they should tell they should tell you and tell me in advance, hey, I have an authority level, but it's only up to X. So at least we can manage around that. Um, the last point in here about who shows up is maturity is critical. Um, and I don't mean that you can't joke around or anything like that, but taking the back and forth, because most people are passionate about this stuff, taking the back and forth in stride and not getting letting things get personal because they can is very important. And again, in terms of the team that you have, on behalf of your client and you, you need to understand who, is there anybody in that group who could, um, for lack of a better term, act up um, and, you know, and, and, and create challenges to moving forward and making progress towards a settlement. And one, one more point on this, one last question for me on this, on this slide, Wally. Typically, at least in my experience, mediators are fans of doing this, or the standard Everybody submit. Everybody submits a pub, so-called public statement, right? That we all exchange. All the parties exchange mediation statement, and then oftentimes they will give an optional, the option to submit an ex parte submission. You know, one that's just for mediators' eyes only, that are typically shorter. And you know, in theory, it's the stuff that you don't obviously you don't want the other side to, to know about. But I mean, sort of, what's your thoughts on those? Because I'll admit, even too, as a lawyer, sometimes I'm sort of skittish about those. Like you know strategically, what's the upside? Um, 
just would, would, would like to know your thoughts, whether that's a practice of yours or if it is, like what's sort of the most valuable approach you can take, the most productive approach to an ex parte submission? Sure. So I ask that all the mediation submissions, the public ones, be shared uh, among all parties for two reasons. Number one, it's construction. There probably aren't any real secrets. Number two, I want the other side, I want all parties to know, and more important, their clients to know what are the other side's arguments. So they know in advance, it's not the day of that they're going to find out about it. Um, but I also offer people the opportunity if they want to send me information that they consider confidential, they send it separately. I won't share that unless they say it's okay. Oftentimes what I get in the confidential um, submissions, and they don't happen, I would say they happen like 20% of the time. Oftentimes what I'll get there is a little bit more in depth about um potential weaknesses that they have on their side. And importantly for me, maybe some background on prior settlement conversations um, to say, hey, we had some discussions, we made some progress, or we offered this, they just never responded. It's going to be their move. And you need to understand that in advance that if you ask us for a number, my client's not going to be thrilled because we're waiting on them. So that's the kind of information I would typically get in a confidential one. Um, it does happen. I'd say it's probably 20 to 25% where people take advantage of that. Um, but I do think that most information should be public. And in in, in this market, it seems like most lawyer, most attorneys are fine with that. Because um, I think in construction in particular, like I said, there's really not many secrets. Um, and again, this next slide talks about outlining strengths and weaknesses of your position in advance. This is for you and your client. This is not for this is not to tell the other side these are my weaknesses. This is for you and your client so they understand beforehand, hey, we don't have 100% lock, you know, lock on this case. Um the law may not be in our uh favor. I'll give you, you know, an example we're all dealing with now is Brompeg. Uh you know, I probably have in the last 2 months had four cases with that as an issue. Um, and I've got another three or four coming up. Um, explaining to your client in advance what their risks are and what the weaknesses are of their position is really important. So they don't get blindsided when they show up. Um, and explaining to a construction client the whole prompt pay situation is is not easy. They get pretty angry about you know the fact that they may have been in business for 40 years. Why do I have to do this? I sent them an email that said we weren't paying them. Why do I have to be very formal about it? Um, it's only been nine years, Wally, since the act was passed. Well, I know, I know. Um, so, so then letting your client know, you know, what's the what's the law? How do the facts apply to that law? Um, how have the documents and the witness statements to date, if we're a few years into litigation or arbitration, you know, affecting what the facts and the law are? Um, you know, what's your opinion if we if you're already done some depositions? Um, what's your opinion to your client on the witness's credibility? Do you do, do you need to tell them, hey, we have a real problem here because our main witness is a field superintendent on this project who doesn't work for us anymore, and I understand you fired him. Your client should know that that's not that that's a potential weakness. I'm not saying that's something you want to tell me. I'm not saying it's something that you know that you need to come out and say to the other side, we know it's a weakness. Um, but it's not, as I say, oftentimes, um, you know, construction people talk and people know where other people go when they leave companies. And they oftentimes will know the circumstances of someone leaving a company. And if that was a termination and the person isn't going to be cooperative with you, then you, your client should know that that's a weakness in your position. Because um, the other side is going to exploit it. And then a last piece, and I'm going to get into damages a little bit more as we go. But a last piece that's important is letting your client know is what's the likely range of damages that's really recoverable here, either for you to collect or for the other side to collect. Is it more money than you think this case is, than they think this case is worth on either side? Or is it less money than they think it's worth? And why? Because I think oftentimes, there's an assumption that the damages just follow automatically from um, from a liability finding, and they don't. Uh, and we'll get into that in a little bit. 
So, and, and well, in terms of you know how the you know this understanding of the effect applying to the law, and you know sometimes you know obviously we have mediations at varying stages of discovery, right? Sometimes it's the eve of trial, sometimes it's before any discovery is done. Are you seeing any particular any particular trends, or can you you know identify like percentage wise like mediations that you've seen are sort of latent discovery where people have the benefit of sort of full visibility of of the record and of the facts versus a more upfront mediation and whether one tends to be more successful in in reaching resolution than the other yeah, I, I the answer is I don't see trends necessarily but I do see a couple a couple of thoughts on that number one is um even though the vast majority of construction contracts at this point and subcontracts require mediation as a condition precedent. Um, there may be times where if if both sides have counsel and it's a complicated situation, so let's just say it's got both delay issues and some defective construction issues and some change order issues involved, you might be in a situation where that's complex enough that if you try early on, it may fail just because people people don't have enough information. And when that happens, um, it's not the end of the day, end of the world. But I think in that circumstance, the attorneys have to be um, open to the concept of saying, well, what if we did some targeted discovery and came back in two months? You know, can we agree that you'll make your project manager available for a no more than four hour deposition and you'll make your um, you know, your, uh, the owner's project manager or the architect available for no more than a four-hour deposition, just so we can both be targeted and come back on the important issues. And if there's experts, you know, experts that you've got preliminarily involved, getting some preliminary information from them to support um, that effort, I think is a good idea. Um, I'm in favor of doing it as soon as possible in terms of mediation. However, if if you've got parties with unequal bargaining power, if you've got parties who, you know, this is their first shot at mediation, um, it may be that the lawyers have to step in and say, you know what, we need to do a little bit more work informally. Let's agree. Let's have a conversation about what are you going to need to really be ready to dig in on this? And I'm going to need a couple of things, too. So I think, you know, early conversation with your counterparts on the other side, counsel on the other side is important. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a fan of it personally with of the targeted discovery, you know, particularly where you get you, know, you might get a multi-million dollar delay or or lost productivity claim. And it's kind of hard to jump into mediation on a 15 day timeline or whatever the contract calls for without any, you know, any examination of the, you know, uh, of the details of the claim. So, yeah, I mean, I'm a fan of, you know, agreeing to, you know, five or six categories of targeted document exchanges with you know, limits on how deep you're going to go into emails and things like that so you don't sidetrack the process. But yeah, interesting thought. Um, I told you we're going to come back to damages and now we are. Um, too often, uh, and it is often, parties spend 80, 90% of their time and energy on liability issues. And damages oftentimes are an afterthought. Um, and I think it's really important that you focus on damages from the outset with your client. Um, you know, as I put here, spending a hundred grand in fees on a case where the, the likelihood of damages are 50 grand or less, client's not going to be happy about that. So if you've got a case that doesn't have a lot of money at stake, I think it's important that you explain to the client how difficult from a business perspective, it's going to be to actually pursue that case, whether in litigation, which will be three, four years or in arbitration, which is probably, you know, nine to 15 months minimum, um, and that it's going to be expensive. And I think it's important to focus on damages. But then when your client tells you, oh, we have a million dollar claim, I think it's important up front to say, okay, how is that broken down? What's the elements of it? And what's the backup for it? And I put kind of some smaller bullet points here primarily because they wouldn't fit on the screen otherwise. But, um, you know, is each party each category of damage is supported by the contract. You may be asking for lost rent and there may be uh, a waiver a waiver of consequential damages. You can't get lost rent, but they're thinking that that's a half a million dollars or more. Well, if you can't get it, your client should know that upfront. 
know, are there bonds involved and what scope of damages are recoverable from the surety if a surety is involved? Um, are there duplications between categories? Um, you know, that can happen. Someone can say they may have submitted a direct cost change order um, or 10 direct cost change orders that included superintendent time in them. Well, if you now have a delay claim in addition to that, there's going to be overlap between the two of those and you should scrub it out. Um, and then do the documents that your client has support the damages, time and material slips, daily reports, are there contract rates? Um, what are your client's job cost reports gonna show? Um, all of your client's records in the contract need to be part of the damages analysis. And just a quick point on job cost reports. Um, I, I find more and more often that people are very hesitant to give them up even though they may have a seven figure claim. And they're gonna, job cost reports are going to be something that is discoverable um, in arbitration or in litigation. So I, I have often wondered what the what the hesitance is. And if the hesitance is the job cost report is not going to support the total of our claim, well, then you better you better modify the claim before that happens. You know, um, you, know you know what well, on that point you're right. There there is a very I think there's a hesitancy. You know, I've seen clients that are they're hesitant do or they're apprehensive that it's going to show that maybe they made more profit in certain areas than you know than than maybe they let on or was anticipated and of course none of that is relevant right at the end of the day you're entitled to all the profit that you can maximize through your efficient you know prosecution of the work etc and 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 the, and the corollary of that the other side is you, you often see i've seen opponents try to try to really hammer away to show how well my client supposedly did in spite of its claim, to which we always argue that's, you know, it's not about profit, it's about profit fade, right? Like I would have had before and I was entitled to it if it wasn't for you, you know, screwing this up. So there is that, they hold these things very close to their vest because they're afraid to show how well they did or didn't do, but you're right. I mean, the issue is, you know, what, what happened with regard to this claim? And so it's not, and, the only thing that's relevant is whether you incurred the cost and, and they're recoverable. And I, I'll make one last point there is I always have clients saying they start out with the notion that these are our actual costs. These are not fake because we actually spent these costs and we have all the receipts. Well, okay. <laughs> but that's a very different thing than just because you spent more money than you thought you were going to doesn't mean that all of that extra money is recoverable to your point. Right. And you know, I've always believed that it's, you know, sloppy damages undermines your claim out of the gate. And it sounds to me like as a mediator, you're looking for the same thing. Uh, absolutely. And, and you know, the, the last thing you want to have happen, and, and you know, I, I know this to be true, is the last thing you want to have happen is someone on the other side. If it's a large claim, they may get auditors in. And if they get auditors in and they find that your um, job costs include money from other jobs, which is possible, or that, or that you know, uh, they don't back up um, what the total is of your claim, that you're saying that these, that the superintendent was out there for, you know, eight extra weeks, and you find out that, you know, there's no time records to back that up. You better know that before, it's better that you know it before mediation, and you certainly better know it before you arbitrate the case, because someone else is going to figure that out. And if they do, you're just going to lose credibility. Um, so, and then the last point I had on this slide, which I think is important, folks, and, and it happens more often than I would would expect, but, you know, um, 93A claims at this point seem to almost just be kind of like a throw-in automatically um, in, um, in many of these situations. And Let's remember what Chapter 93A was designed to do. It's designed to deal with unfair and deceptive practices. Just because someone disagrees with you about something or disagrees with your client about something doesn't mean it's an unfair and deceptive act. Um, you know, I'll give the example where someone says, yeah, we billed you, you know, uh, $87,000 last month and you never responded. Therefore, the fact that you didn't pay it becomes a, is a prompt pay violation and an automatic 93A. And it's sort of like, 
No, I didn't pay it. I gave you an email. Maybe I didn't comply with the prompt pay, but I didn't violate Chapter 93A. The reason this is important, and I, and I want to spend a second on it, is because when the client sees 93A in the demand letter or in the complaint or in the arbitration demand, and they see multiple damages and attorney's fees, that fact sticks in their mind. And then, you know, halfway through the day, they give that up. And they say, that's a big move on our part. When in reality, folks, the next case that I see that where, where the court actually in a construction case um, awards 93A damages, um, I think is going to be the first one. Um, you know, it's not, they're not designed for garden variety, contractor, subcontractor disputes, owner contractor disputes. They're just not designed for that. And I think it's important to let your client know that, yes, we have a good faith basis to, to pursue that claim or to allege that claim. I think it's important to let them know that the odds of collecting on it are low and that the other side is, frankly, probably not going to give that claim much credibility, certainly for settlement purposes. So, you know, while, while yes, our first move might be to give it up, I think giving it up is, should not be something that your client says, well, I just gave up two-thirds of my damages because I gave up the 93A claim. Right. I mean, there are literally one or two published cases, right, while I work in, in construction. And and that's what I, you know, going the other way, when I advise clients about avoiding potential 93A liability, the only situation that ever gives me any pause is where they're withholding undisputed money Correct. as a lever to try to settle an unrelated claim, right? I mean, that's what you got to do. You have to breach the contract pretty much on purpose as a means to try to get some advantage, you know, on some other deal. And that that's never these cases. I agree. So. Yeah. All right. The next slide, John. So um, this, this dovetails this next slide, which I say provide recommended settlement ranges. This dovetails with the damages analysis. Um, and I think it's important for your client upfront to not show up at 9 a.m. Uh, tomorrow in my office with you for the first time and then for the first time have the conversation about, well, what are we looking for here today? Uh, I'm looking to give 10% off of a number. I think it's important for you as counsel to be letting them know upfront, what do you think is a reasonable range for settling this case and why? Um, because I think if if the and again coming back to the theme of managing expectations, if you're not managing your client's expectations um, beforehand, and you show up, and they're thinking that you know this is you know the settlement uh, if they're demanding two hundred fifty thousand dollars is some number between two hundred and two twenty five, um, without regard to how good or bad the claim is, how good or bad the damages are, then it's going to be a difficult day at best. So I think it's letting your clients know what you think is a reasonable range and why, and then telling them what the process is like. So I put some expectations in here. Plaintiffs expect to be disappointed by the first offer. Um, expect the defendants to continue to raise possibility of a defense verdict to explain lower offers than anticipated. And expect the defendants to attack all elements of damages, what we talked about before. Likewise, with the defendants, you've got to make sure that they have expectations as well. You know, if, again, I'm going to go back to prompt pay because it's pretty regular now. If, and I had one two weeks ago and the attorney, the prompt pay was, it, it wasn't as clean and it only really related to one pay app, but um, the attorney kind of had not really explained to his client that there was a real risk on that one anyways. So it was, it took some time to get them around, to get their heads around it, but it's important to tell the defendants up front, um, you know, the plaintiff's going to be testing your commitment. Um, you got to be, you have to be, uh, expect to be disappointed by their first demand. Um, and one other thing that's more and more happening as a key in this thing, and it, it has caused some real problems with cases involving insurance carriers, is the effective interest on the, um, on the demands. Um, and with 12% and with COVID, some of the cases, I have a case pending right now that was filed in 2015 that we mediated last week. So that's eight years of interest. That's a, basically 100%. It's doubling of what the reasonable you know, expected set, uh, judgment might be in the case. 
And the plaintiff's probably going to win something, not what they're looking for, but they're going to win something. And I've had um, particularly insurance carriers say, we don't pay for interest. And it's sort of like, well, in the normal situation, if we were a year, you know, a year after the incident or we were two years into suit, yeah, I could probably agree with that. But where the interest at this point on what they get is going to be two thirds to 75 percent, even as much as doubling um, again, the whatever judgment they get, that's important. And that's something you've got to expect that they're not just going to give up, um, you know, at 9.15 in the morning. So I think that's really important. Yeah, the interest, yeah, that can, it can be, sometimes it drags out long enough, it can be double, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, um, one of the other things is just explain the process for mediation day. Um, I think, you again, you have to, many times I've had people walk in at 9 a.m. and they're expecting they'll be out of there by 12.15. And especially in construction cases, I mean, does that happen? I guess occasionally, but it's rare. Um, but, you know, people need to, I say plaintiffs, but all parties, clients especially, need to know what to expect, especially if it's their first um, mediation. It's important that they understand that they should be in for, they should carve out the day, carve out the full day. Um, and, and I have had some real problems where people um, have said, I, I can only be here at one o'clock. And it's sort of like, well, then I'm not sure what we're doing here. Um, particularly if you're operating by Zoom, um, uh, you know, or, you know, virtual mediation, it's important to, to, to let people know um, that while, yes, you can plan to take a conference call or whatever at some specified time, you can't just assume, um, you know, this is this is your priority for the day and you've got people waiting on you. You can't just assume you can just on your will take another call and take a half hour off because, you know, there's no predicting what the timing is of each session. There's no predicting of when I'm going to come back in a room or or move out of a room, which is sort of why I really favor in-person mediations um, if I can get them, because um, at least then I have some control over people's presence. Um, but I think it's important to let your folks know that the process can be frustrating um, and they should know the entire the entire day and what it can be like and what can happen. Um, and in the larger cases, you know, there are sometimes it doesn't happen as often as anymore, but there's cases where I have gone as late as 9, 10, even midnight um, to get a case resolved. That's rare now, but it does still happen. And the last piece here, as I say, bring bring a book or bring other work um, because, because your client is likely to be bored during the day, but they should have, they should understand that the process just takes time and, and it's fluid and it's not, there's not a way to predict um, how long or how short it's going to be. Um, and oftentimes the the attorneys may have other cases with the clients. So from your end, this is an opportunity for you too to have conversations about other cases and maybe say, hey, you know, we know this one's we'll get this resolved today, but we know this other one's coming up. Let's 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 bring the information on the other bigger case to the mediation, and maybe at some downtime we'll have a chance to talk about that. Um, it's opportunity for you as an attorney too to sort of you know to get something else done with your same client and to show them that you're trying you know, to, to, to always act in their best interest, their best business interests. Um, so it's it can be a long day. It can be frustrating. They need to know in advance it can be a long day and it can be frustrating. So in terms of since we're talking about process here, Wally, um, when, I, when I think about the typical format, you know, in my experience, not everyone, but most in my experience, you know, the classic format's been, you know, we all convene introduce ourselves, the mediator does their own thing in terms of they might try to do some icebreakers or whatever. And then each typically each side does a presentation and then you, you break out, right? And then maybe you do the shuttle diplomacy all day, you know, mediator going back and forth. Um, and I, that's a very one size fits all description, but I'm wondering just from you, so do you, do you have a preferred format that deviates from that? Sort of what are your thoughts on um, yeah, putting presentations and sort of how to make those, you know, most bang for your buck in those. Um, over the last four or five years, I've really gotten away from presentations. And I, if, if there's an important technical issue, um, I, then fine. So if it's, there was a collapse, if it's, there's a, 
there's a leaky building and you think that the expert that you have or that the other side has are going to be useful in explaining to the decision makers what they're going to see as time goes on and why their their position has merit. Uh, sure, go ahead and do it, but I think you've got to keep it very short and very brief. Um, I don't want lawyers making arguments. It doesn't help matters. It tends to just torque people off. Um, that's why I try to get away from them now. Um, that was a trend that started on the West Coast, and 20 years ago, they stopped doing them. And I'd say now it's less than half, probably even not even a third now where we have opening statements. Um, what I then do, though, after I do a brief introduction where people introduce each other and talk about the plan for the day is I'll get into the private sessions. And typically, there'll be one, if not two, private sessions with both parties or all parties before I even ask for an offer. Um, because I want to dig into um, the specifics of the claims, the specifics of the facts of the case, and particular issues for a couple of reasons. Um, number one is, it's to show the folks that I'm prepared and hopefully gain a little bit of trust with them uh, on both sides. But, in, but as well, some of my questions are designed just to get more information because I need the information, but some of my questions are designed to um, sort of give them a hint that maybe there's a weakness that they really haven't considered in this particular position. Um, not necessarily say it right out, but at least let them know that the other, anything I say, I'm going to be like, you can't assume that the lawyer on the other side is going to be stupid. Eventually, she's going to figure something out that I'm just coming to now. And if you don't have a good answer for that, well, then what does that do to your settlement position? It doesn't mean you lose, but it does mean maybe you need to adjust your settlement position. But I'll do that once or twice, depending on the dynamics of the mediation, and then start asking, are you are you in a position now to make a proposal to try to resolve this? If so, and I may say the second time I go into one room before I go in the other room, when I come back, can you be thinking about what you'd be willing to do to get the process started? What would you like to demand? What would you like to offer to get the process started? So that I don't just ask for it without them having had some time to have that conversation. So I have to ask you then, as a lawyer who's somewhat disappointed in the, the move away from the opening presentations only because I had some success, or maybe I just get wrapped up in myself too much and like it too much, the process of sort of yep. putting up some of the devastating emails that, you know, and just, I guess, strategically, I think a lot of lawyers just assume that, look, we need some opportunity to try to push them back on their heels to have a good sort of negotiation, you know, to set the table for a negotiation. And I, I will happily concede that I'm approaching this all wrong. I'm just curious as to what you think then is what's, if that's not favored, right? How do we as lawyers, like what, what is the mechanism in mediation that that moves parties closer together if it's not if it's not a presentation like that? It's your mediation submission. And I say to people, send me everything. I'll try to read it all. If you're saying you have five devastating emails where they admitted we owe this guy. And I, that's a good example, John, because I had a case a couple of years ago that had been going on for about four or five years. And in the mediation submissions, there were about five emails where one party internally admitted that the contractor was entitled to a minimum of two and a half months time extension where in the meet you know in their in their statements and in their pleadings they've been saying they weren't entitled to a day's worth of time and so in the presentation all of those emails the person put out there so i without torquing them off by the lawyer pointing you know sticking a sharp stick in their eye. I had the ability to start the day and say, guys, I'm just going to come to this. Your position is not only are they, they're, they're not entitled to a day's worth of time and they owe you two and a half million dollars in liquidated damages. But here are four emails where you guys said to yourselves, they get two and a half months of time right there that eliminates over a million and a half of the, of the limit liquidated damages. And it also affects the credibility of the rest of your position. So what I say to people is, you know, I, 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 my feeling is if you're good at what you do and you can convey it in writing, convey it in writing. And if the emails are as good as you say, then they'll be as good as you say. And then it's my job to find a way to move the parties with it. And if the, if the mediator is as good as you hope 
or and expect that mediator will have done his or her homework and will be able to readily sort of recall and pull those key facts from your submissions in trying to bring you together. I've usually printed them out and I have them in a notebook, John. So <laughs> I don't I don't remember as much at my age as I used to, but uh, I usually have the important stuff lined up. So yes. All okay, right. Last point on on mediation is, and this is important and it's really important. Uh, make sure at the end of the day, if you get a settlement, you document it and you get someone to sign it, even if it's just the material terms in a memo. The last thing you want to have happen is you spent the day there, your client's not happy about the settlement, the other client's not happy about it, but you got to a place that everybody can live with. The last thing you want to do is let everybody walk out the door. And then the next morning, someone goes into their boss and says, yeah, we settled that. And then he says, for what amount? And you say, $250,000. He said, well, I'm not buying off on that. And if it's not in, if it's not in writing, you know, then you got a problem. Um, that's only happened to me once. And thankfully, it was within one of the first years um, um, in one of the first years of my mediation practice. And I said, I'm never letting it happen again. John, there was one question as well um, that I just got that says, do you find a difference in either the ultimate settlement amount or length of mediation based on whether the parties make big moves, but put the brakes on early as opposed to compare making lots of small moves and marching in sync? Um, I'm going to give a lawyer's answer there. It depends. <laughs> um, and, and, and I don't think there's any one way to answer that because I think um, you can have, if, if both parties are sophisticated, uh, ah, let me make, use a different word. If both parties are experienced in mediation, um, it's more likely they're going to be willing to make moves to get the case settled sooner rather than later because they've, they've got a rhythm. They understand the situation. Um, but if you've got an imbalance there where one party may be, this may be their 20th mediation and the other party, it may be their first or second. You've got to kind of account for that. And I think in that circumstance, some of my job is to assist the party that's more experienced in saying, okay, I understand you want to move this faster, but um, I think we've got to take it a little slower because they're not going to be quite so convinced that if you make a big move that you're not going to just keep making them and they may not respond in kind. So I hate to say things like a lawyer and say it depends, but it does depend. But I think if you've got two sophisticated parties in terms of, uh, again, I used the wrong word. If you've got two experienced parties in terms of mediation experience, I think you're more likely to be able to um, make progress quicker and move ahead. So, all right, John, do you want to flip over to arbitration? Yeah, and I was just going to, one last thing. I know we have to sort of move it along, but it just, if, if it doesn't settle, you're not lucky enough to have to be put in that situation of putting together a, an agreement to agree. Um, where, do you, where do you find, like, what do you typically do? I know, well, you probably never have that this happen. So. No, it happens a lot. It happens a lot on the first day that cases don't settle. So, yeah. where do you like to leave it? What's the best way to leave it? In your, so, here's what I'll typically do, um, which some, some mediators do, some don't. Well, here's what I'll typically do is say, I think we're at impasse for the day. I think we should suspend for the day. Um, what I will do, because I'm really um, somewhat passionate about trying to get cases settled, um, the next day or within a couple of days or a week, I will sit back, look at my look at my notes, look at the files, look at the stuff, and send each attorney um, or a set of attorneys a confidential email or memo that summarizes my view of the strengths and the weaknesses of their particular case. And usually include in that a range of settlement that I think would be reasonable. And, it, you know, there's no magic in it, but typically what I will do is try to have the party paying, I will say why they should pay more and I'll have a range of X. Um, and then the party who is receiving money, I'll, I'll say they should take less and I'll have a range of Y. And if I'm doing my job right, there'll be like a Venn diagram where those things intersect. But I've given enough of a range that, you know, you might be able to get it resolved. And then I'll just follow up by phone with people and say, you know, is there a chance of us getting in that range? And if not, what's the impediment? Um, what's the reason we can't move? Um, I, I think particularly given, 
you know, how slow cases get resolved now and how expensive it is to resolve cases by binding dispute resolution. Um, you know, it's important to try to get cases resolved as early as you can. And sometimes as a business matter, and I really try to focus people on business matters or business considerations. Um, you know, don't you want to get this resolved before year end? Don't you want to close your books on this job? It's a seven-year-old job. Litigation is just bad news for everybody. So um, that's what I try to do. So when even that fails and we're forced to proceed to arbitration. Right. Um, so here's here's a few overview items for you know have preparing for successful arbitration. Have a have a theme and conform the evidence to the theme, or or say it the other way. Um, consider what your evidence is and conform your theme to that evidence. Um, it, I think just like it's it is more informal, but just like you're trying a case, you should have a theme. Um, and you know you don't have to go overboard on it, but but I think saying that you know if there's multiple issues at stake. Um, saying they just, you know, the owner just would not make decisions timely. And as a result, instead of it being a 12-month job, it turned into a 24-month job. Um, that's a, It's important to have a theme. Make the damages simple. Um, I can't stress this enough. Um, if you, if your damages are all over the place and they're not organized and relatively simple, um, it's it's difficult to parse that through, you know, I do it, but it's easier if you make it simple. Um, do not ignore weaknesses. If you have a weakness and you know when you have a weakness, either in a witness or a, John, as you said, the four or five devastating emails, you've got to make the best of a bad situation because the other side's going to use them. Um, so making the best of a bad situation is important um, and don't ignore your weaknesses. And then I said post-trial, but post-hearing submissions, you should make them as simple as possible. Keep them back to your themes, make them as simple as possible. Can we go next slide? Yeah. All right. So again, themes. Um, arbitrators are similar to judges, although usually we have more experience in, in that subject matter than a judge. But, you know, where we, you got... Um, either a whole bunch of different claims. We got some change orders. We got some delay claims. We got those, some defective work claims. Trying to keep a theme and say, keep things going against the theme, I think is important. Um, and themes bring the evidence together. And one other thing which is hard in construction cases is to the extent possible, if your witnesses can understand the themes and attempt to reinforce them, that's really important. Um, you may have some fact witnesses who really you just want to get the facts out with, and that's completely okay. But if there is a key witness or two that you're relying on, if it's a project executive or if it's field superintendent, um, they should understand what you're trying to get across to me as an arbitrator, to an arbitration panel um, as something to keep in mind when, when we're done. I do remember a long time ago, uh, we went through a case at Suffolk and we had one of the best witnesses ever who was our superintendent and he understood the themes completely against the subcontractor and he really just dragged that case across the finish line with a really good result for us um because he understood and he was willing you know and he and he made us modify a few things because he said i can't really say that and i'm not going to say it and that's fine um and he was much more effective because he understood what he was trying to get across and wally so in, you know people on this uh, in this presentation, who who you know arbitrated cases before, will probably know that typically, you know, rules of evidence and the sort of procedure of getting evidence admitted is tends to be much more lax than in court. Um, and you know, I, I I wonder, and and so sometimes it takes on a more informal air, right? And I wonder whether did, are you seeing that. Do you, do you find that sometimes as an arbitrator that there that lawyers maybe or don't uh, prepare maybe as well or enough you know as they yes. would I I, it's I've not lawyers but I think it is trial yeah your question is a good one I, I think it is fair to say that because of some of the informality of it uh and because the rules of evidence are more lax um 
some lawyers will not be as prepared. And I'll give you a good example, and it's 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 an annoying one, so it's it's probably even better. Um, if you're going to put an email into evidence, um, I don't need 19 pages of an email chain. I, I what I need and what's helpful to me is the two or three emails within there that both you and opposing counsel consider important. And one thing I think that people tend to ignore in arbitration, which is a problem, is the counsel don't look at the scheduling order from the arbitrator or from the arbitration panel. We're looking to make it efficient and smooth for you, your clients, and ourselves. So when we put in an order, something that says, you shall get together and confer on the exhibits, we expect that you're going to do it. We don't expect that you're both going to put in an exhibit book that weighs 17 pounds, where three quarters of the exhibits, 90% of the exhibits overlap. So what I say in my orders is, you shall confer, you shall give me a list of joint exhibits, and if there are five, 10, 15 exhibits that you um, dispute, then give me a list of those. We'll deal with that as they come up if you decide to use them. But I think it's important that, and, and again, if you are sitting there and you want a, a witness to testify about a particular email, having him flip through an exhibit to get to page eight of 19 of an email chain is not gonna be productive or effective for you, the witness, or anybody else. So I think it is important to be, formality isn't important, but doing the job in advance and preparing is important. Um, you know, I'm not gonna hold it against you because that happened, but it does tend to break up the flow of your particular case and your questioning if it's not prepared well and it's not smoothly presented, okay? Um, arbitration damages, again, they should be simple for the arbitrator panel to follow. Any summary of damages should be tied to supporting information. So um, if you've got a claim for delay, um, what I will say is explain, and, and a chalk is a good idea, um, and I generally allow chalks as long as, as long as they're not a surprise, but a chalk's a good idea to explain, here's the total, here's the categories, and Mr. Arbitrator and Ms. Arbitrator, we will run through the exhibits that support it. There is an exhibit that supports, or there are multiple exhibits that support each one of these categories of damages. Uh, we may not have them on the chalk, but we will run through them with the witnesses so it's clear that we didn't just make these up and just extrapolate X to get to Y. Uh, that's important. Um, again, and I say, if you intend to use a chalk, put it in front of opposing counsel before introducing it. And I don't mean, as you introduce it, hand, them a, hand her a copy. I mean, a day or two uh, in advance of the witness testifying for whom you're gonna use a chalk, they should see it and say, okay, yep, I can live with that, I understand it, or I'm gonna object and here's why. Because sometimes if they say, I'm gonna object and here's why, um, you can say, well, what if I change this and what if I took this piece out? They may say, okay, that's fine. I'm likely to allow it in anyways, but I don't, particularly like the idea of, of surprise to opposing counsel on something like that, because there's no reason for it, especially if you're talking about damages. Um, and again, if there's multiple categories of damages, um, each should be presented on its own and then summarized at the end. Um, so again, as I said, if you've got multiple change orders, direct cost change orders, bricks and sticks, um, that's their own category. If there's a delay claim, that's its category. If there's defective work, that's its own category. And then at the end, a summary that says, when you add all these up, here's where it is. Here's the credits that they're due for work we didn't do. Here's why. And I think it's helpful to, to make it as simple as possible for people to follow. Okay, we're getting down to the top of the hour here. So. Well, I got a couple more anyways. Yeah, yeah. Address, go ahead, John. And that whole and, the, and your theme of not, not no no surprises, Wally. Too, it's you know you know in court, obviously, you you get you 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 put documents on your on your exhibit list. You know you, you agreed to. You have disputed exhibits, so everybody sees those the agreed and the disputed. But you also might have stuff that you're using just for impeachment that you don't actually have to put on that list, right? As long as it doesn't 
not trying to admit it into evidence. And so there are the there's the element of surprise, you know, at trial, sometimes it documents you're when I, in, in arbitration, at least in my experience, is consistent with what you're saying. Arbitrators typically say at the beginning, you're gonna use a document for any purpose, impeachment, you know, anything else. I want to see it up front. I want you to exchange them up front. Is that what you do? Yes. I, I don't, I don't. The, the, the challenge is, and I understand the need and the desire to be able to impeach somebody and who says X, and then there's a document that says Y. Um, but as a practical matter, if that's surprise, there's a chance we may have to suspend the hearing. And we, and generally speaking, the hearings get scheduled months in advance. So if we have to suspend for a reason where someone says, well, if he's going to use that to impeach my witness, I now need to be able to rebut that, but I need a day or two to be able to go back to the record, figure out what exhibits are going to rebut it, because I know they're there, and then come back to you. And that's not good for anybody, and it, you know, it just delays. So that's why I do it. I understand, and I try to balance when you're saying that, the, 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 the desire to try, quote unquote, try your case the way you want. But I think it's the, the efficiency of arbitration is probably one of my paramount things. And again, it's expensive for your clients um, and time is important and time is money. So I, I, if you're going to use something for any purpose, I, I hope it's out there. And the other thing is, if it's as good a piece of evidence as you think, as, as this slide says, the other side is likely to try to deal with it anyways, um, because they're going to want their witness to acknowledge that weakness and deal with it. And to some extent, then you've got the benefit of, of, of getting that information in anyways. And by the yeah. way, if they happen to have it, not have done that with the witness, and you still get to impeach them, and it was always on an exhibit list, well, then, you know, you've got double the benefit in that, at that point, in my view. So, okay, so weaknesses, addressing, weaknesses, addressing weaknesses then follows your theme of full transparency. Yes, yes. And to try to pick it up, we should probably just go to the next one, which is um, post-hearing submissions, John. Next slide. Yeah, so um, keep these simple. And there's always a temptation to expand, expound, stay within the page limit. Um, I, I set page limits that are appropriate to the case itself, at least in my view. And I, and I also, by the way, in most of my orders, will ask for a, 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 um, a pre-hearing statement so I understand the themes and I understand some of the important exhibits and provisions. So I have a pretty good idea of what's going on. Um, but if we set a 15 or 20 page page limit, and by the way, guys, you know what that means then is if you think you really need 20 pages, then say it to me if I'm saying 10, then I don't have a problem with that. But stay within the limit. Don't don't make it 40 pages when we said 20. And I don't need, I, I need exhibit citations, but I don't need you to give me what the exhibit said. Just tell me the citation. You're gonna remember this thing because four witnesses testified about it. It's the key thing. And if you wanna quote from it, feel free to quote from it, but um, keep it within the page limit. The arbitrator listened to the evidence and they took notes. And, and I've done a few large cases recently with panels. Um, and I always thought I kept pretty good notes. When I say pretty good, I mean, I take notes on every witness. I'm not saying they're the greatest. And if you saw my handwriting, they're certainly not that. Um, but the, the lengths to which these, in this one panel case, uh, one of the other arbitrators went to take notes was astounding. He probably had four times the number of notes that, you know, the, the, the volume of notes I had. Um, so in your post-hearing submission, um, highlight the important testimony of the key exhibits. Don't repeat every argument, but do address the key items. And the last but not least, be specific in what you're asking for. What's the ruling on each claim that you're asking me to give? Um, and how much in damages should be awarded and why? Um, I'm not one of those people who ask somebody to give me um, a specific form of award, but I do say be specific about what you're asking for. We're asking for, we're asking that you rule in our favor on claims one, two, and three, and that you rule and that you rule against the, the you know the counter the counterclaimant on their claims one and two. 
and please, we're looking for on claim one, $88,000 in damages on claim two, $173,247. Whatever it is, be specific about it so that I know exactly what you're looking for. Because if I'm hunting around, I may make some mistakes on it. So, so you, you see, in, do you see uh, court reporters used, you know, stenographers used for a lot of hearings or just for the really big ones that are sort of long? Um, I would say only for the really big ones at this point. Um, again, it's a cost factor. And from my end of it, and this is just me, so other arbitrators may have a different viewpoint. But from my end of it, um, I take what I consider to be fairly copious notes. Um, and I try to, if if it's if, if the hearing is going over multiple weeks where you might do two days and then three days and then take a week off, um, I will tend at the end of each week to take a couple hours and review the notes and tell myself what's what's what did I get that was important from that. I can say to you when I've had transcripts, um, and I don't want to be rude when I say this, but I've probably read the you know read more than a few pages of the transcripts, 20, 30 percent of the time. Um, if I'll read a transcript if I know there's a witness that I know he had a quote I want to use, yeah, I'll go find it. But I don't think that's key to my decision. I just think since I have the benefit of a transcript, I might go do it. But I don't think that would change. That's not going to change the substance of the decision I make. So I think it's, I don't see the need for them except on the biggest cases. Um, and when I say big, I mean millions. Um, because having a stenographer, as you know, what's the cost of a deposition? It's the same thing. Um, right. It's an expensive proposition if you've got, you know, four or five days of hearing. Um, and remember, the client's paying the bills. Well, that just that, that brings us to the end okay. of the presentation. And if there's any questions, I know we've gone a little bit over, so I appreciate people sticking with us. But um, thank I you. I do appreciate everybody taking the time. Um, and I hope you got something from this. And you can feel free to reach out to me if you've got separate questions. I'm always happy to talk about this stuff. Um, you know, I uh, can't talk about individual cases, but if you've got a situation where you you know, you want some, you want to just run something by me, feel free to pick up the phone or, or send me an email. Yeah, we just had something pop up here. I can get my, oh. thank you. Just thanks for me. No problem, Anatoly. Thank you for, for coming. Um, so yeah, and I didn't even mention, you know, I think my, I was introduced, but also, so you, you can contact Wally, Wally McDonough at ELK Consulting Services. And um, I'm John Elder, I'm a construction partner at Anderson and Krieger. And rather than rattle off our emails, I'm sure you can find us in a you know few uh, few clicks of a of a mouse on on the internet. Uh, you can find our emails and uh, contact either one of us with any questions. So, but I want to thank you, Wally, for very informative, always interesting. I had probably a million more questions, and maybe you and I can catch up offline sometime, and you can answer them for me. But but I uh, appreciate it. Thanks everybody for uh, for coming. Uh, and again. Uh, Feel free to follow up with Wally uh, with any questions you might have for him. And, and same goes with me. So thanks again. Uh, have a great day, everybody. Thank you, folks. Take care. Bye.